This morning, our reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. I invite you to listen for the word of God in these words of scripture. But when the Son of God comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? Or a stranger and show you hospitality? Or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. And I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Here ends our reading. May we be blessed with understanding. What the hell? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I actually misread that. Well, what I meant was, what is hell? What is hell? What is heaven? That is what we are talking about today as we continue on in our Church Word series. And we're talking about those things because today we're taking up what is perhaps the church word of church words, that is the word salvation. Now, even if you didn't grow up going to church, you no doubt have it clearly embedded in your mind that the reason that this church exists, the reason that any church exists, is to help people end up in the eternal glory of heaven rather than in the eternal torment of hell. Is that a fair and accurate statement? And so generally, when you hear a person talk about salvation or hear about a person being quote-unquote saved, 
what that usually means is that person has believed all the things they think they need to believe in order to secure a one-way ticket up to heaven. And it is true, you can certainly read the Bible and walk away with an understanding that that is how it's all supposed to shake out in the end. In fact, lots of Christians, not all Christians, but lots of Christians have believed just that for hundreds and hundreds of years. But as with all things Bible, when we go to see what it actually has to say, what we find is a much more complicated picture. And what is perhaps of most interest to us as you know, people who don't want to end up in the hellfire, is that when we look at the whole sweep of scripture, what we find is that heaven and hell aren't quite eternal as we have been led to believe. And instead, we discover that they actually have a very clear starting point, not in the teachings of Jesus, but in the, interp the interpretations of those teachings by those who came after him. Now, ain't that something? But in order to understand what the Bible has to say about what happens to us at the very end of our lives, we counterintuitively need to first talk about the very beginning of life. That is, we need to talk about the creation story in Genesis. So right now I'm going to invite you all to dig deep. I need you to mine the dark recesses of your mind. Uh, for some, those, those dark recesses will be darker than others. Uh, I need you to think back to a long ago and faraway time when you were maybe sitting in a Sunday school classroom. Now, now, from that deep well of memory, can anyone recall the story in Genesis of how that very first person was made? And that is an actual question that I'm, I'm putting out to the, the, not just the live studio audience, but the viewers at home. How was that first person made according to Genesis? Does anyone remember? Anyone willing to risk an answer? Bob, I see your hand up. Bob, yes, that's right, that's right. So God took a lump of dirt, he, he formed it into the shape of a human, and he breathed life into it. Thus God created Adam, Adam, the Hebrew word for human, from Adam-a, Hebrew for dirt. From the very get-go, it turns out the Bible's pun game is strong. So as the opening chapters of Genesis so vividly and so punnily depict for us, a human being consists of two things, a body and that animated, animating breath within it. And when those two things separate, when that animating breath leaves the body at the point of death, according to the majority of the Old Testament, that is it. That is the end of the road. That is all she wrote. Because the body and that animating breath cannot exist separately from each other. So in this scenario, you don't go to heaven, you don't go to hell, you just cease to be. This is why the psalmist writes cheery lines like this one from Psalm 104. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. That's not the author being poetic. That's him writing a very literal account of what he believes will happen at death. And to reiterate, this is the view of things that hold for the majority of the Old Testament. But then about 200 years before Jesus was born, Jewish thinkers like Daniel, of Daniel and the Lion's Den fame, these thinkers began to grapple with a very serious existential question. 
Namely, they began to ask, why is it that, that we, God's chosen people, the only people on earth who worship the one true God of Israel, why is it that we have been getting smacked around like a ping pong ball for centuries? Being conquered first by this awful heathen nation and then by that awful heathen nation? How can it be that we, the righteous, suffer endlessly while the wicked prosper? And then at the end, we just all die and that's it. How could it be that there is no justice for God's own people? And the answer that these Jewish thinkers arrived at was that even though pain and suffering are rampant now, especially among God's people, a time is coming down the road when God will swoop in and set everything right. At that time, God will judge who is righteous and who is wicked. The wicked will be destroyed once and for all, that is, they will cease to exist. And the righteous, the righteous will live on in eternal bliss with God on an earth now free of pain, misery, and suffering. suffering. And what's more, they surmised, at that time, God would also resurrect everybody who had ever lived and judge them too. The righteous would keep on living on earth in newly restored bodies. And the wicked, well, the wicked would be totally and painfully annihilated. Again, in this scenario, no one's going to heaven. No one is going to hell. Instead, the righteous will live with God in a new utopia on earth. And the wicked will be eradicated and cease to exist. Those are the only two options. And as surprising as it may be for us to hear, this is the tradition, this is the understanding of the afterlife that Jesus himself would have been raised in. And to the best of our knowledge, this is also the tr tradition that Jesus himself stood in as he preached and taught and carried out his earthly ministry. And when you think about it for a second, doesn't this help us make a lot of sense of Jesus' talk about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? So for instance, his very first words in the New Testament are what? The kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe in the good news. So in other words, God's new kingdom on earth is almost here. And if you want to be part of it, you better get with the program. But what happened is that when that kingdom about which Jesus preached did not come right away, and Jesus' teachings began to spread far and wide through the ancient world, being received by folks of different cultures who weren't raised with the same beliefs about the afterlife, it's then that this idea of heaven and hell began to emerge. And we can actually see the development of this in the pages of our Bibles. So in the bits of the New Testament that were written first, closest to Jesus' life, uh, the letters of Paul and the Gospel of Mark, and in the bit of the New Testament written by Jews for Jews, the Gospel of Matthew, there is no mention of heaven and hell, but there is a ton of talk about this coming kingdom. But then when you get to the writings of our friend Luke, who was writing about Jesus some 60 years after he was crucified, and who himself was not Jewish, but instead was born and raised and stood firmly in a tradition with roots all the way back to Plato that taught that our souls are eternal and can live separate from our bodies, 
it's with Luke and others like him that Jesus' teachings about the kingdom of God started being interpreted as implying the existence of a heaven and hell that you go to after you die. After all, if your soul is eternal, it needs to go somewhere, right? And if there's a judgment coming, it just makes good sense that that judgment would happen right as the, the soul separates from the body at the point of death instead of some far-off point in the future. So although it's at odds with what Jesus himself would have believed as a, a Jewish person, it's this view that the church ultimately picked up and ran with for better or for worse. And I would say probably mostly for worse. In any case, being better equated now with Jesus' own views on the afterlife, uh, when we at long last turn to today's reading from chapter 25 of Matthew's Gospel, it sounds a little less ominous than it did at first glance. We now know that when Jesus here talks about eternal punishment, he isn't talking about eternal torment in hell. He's talking about eternal non-existence. He believes the wicked will be thrown into the fire and be destroyed once and for all. And then when he's talking about eternal life, he's talking about a future bodily existence here on earth in a world free from pain and suffering. But what makes this passage truly interesting, truly unique, is the criteria that Jesus lays out for who gets this eternal life. Listen to what he says. He says, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say to them, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, you were doing it to me. So in this teaching, what separates, what sets apart the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous, the people who receive eternal life and the people who receive eternal non-existence? What sets them apart is their devotion to the welfare of others. The poor, the needy, the sick, the oppressed, the alien, the outcast. And that's it. That's the only criteria that Jesus mentions. So it turns out that, that you don't need to affirm this creed or that doctrine. You don't need perfect church attendance, I'm sad to say. You don't need to be able to quote the Bible chapter and verse, you don't even need to be a Christian. Maybe you notice that the people in today's passage were surprised to learn that it was Jesus they were helping. So what, what does this mean about salvation? Well, what, what, what then is salvation? Well, according to Jesus, our ultimate salvation is a future life lived with God in a world that is free of pain, misery, and suffering. And what's more, that salvation, it belongs to all of those who help 
create just such a world by working diligently for the welfare of others. Friends, there will come a day for each of us when that, that animating breath within us will leave our bodies. And on that day, when we pass from this earthly realm, if we have committed our lives to love, we may indeed have this future life to hope for. But at very least, at very least, what I want you to know is that we have nothing to fear. In Jesus' name, amen.